Heavenly Father, you are our refuge and our shield, for we have put our hope in you and in your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now to strengthen our hope in your word and in yourself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue to look at the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. We've been studying together and we've seen a number of things that have been happening since Christ was baptised. We, when we were studying Matthew previously, we were actually studying chapters 3 and 4 of Matthew's gospel and we saw Jesus get baptised in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we saw his temptations and then we saw him do uh, some miracles and call his disciples. Then he went to uh, teach in the Sermon on the Mount and we skipped over that because I actually preached on that when I first arrived here at Des Baptist. And then we've picked it up, the narrative, at chapter 8. And what have we seen then of Christ's in, uh, since his baptism? Well, we've seen that he does amazing miracles. Uh, he did those back in chapter 4. We've seen that he is an amazing teacher, uh, that he has taught uh, with authority. You look with me at chapter 7, verse 28. Verse 28, so just before Matthew chapter 8, page 962, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What does Jesus' ministry look like? It looks amazing. He teaches amazingly and he does amazing miracles. And so what is the response of people as they see this amazing teacher and this amazing miracle worker? Well, we see that many people follow him, that crowds begin to follow him. You can see that back in chapter 4, uh, verse 24, where we read their news about him spread over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Uh, he has been healing many people, and therefore, what do we read is a response of people in verse 25? Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Basically, all over Israel, people are beginning to follow the Lord Jesus. There's crowds flocking to him. And as he continues to do miracles in chapter 8, we see that more and more people continue to follow him there as well. In uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him in response to his teaching after he has been also doing great miracles. And, of course, he's done a number of miracles even as we've looked at chapter 8 together. What miracles has he done? Well, he healed a man with leprosy. He healed a centurion's servant. And last week we saw that he healed uh, Mer uh, uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, so he's done these miracles, and as a response, large crowds are following him. So what does Jesus start to do in response to all these crowds? Well, he's done a number of things, as we've seen, but what does he start to do at this moment in time that we're looking at today as we come looking through Matthew chapter 8? Well, in chapter 8, verse 18, what do we see? We see that when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. What is Jesus' response to these crowds? Well, he's actually going to move on. He's going to get into a boat and he's going to cross to the other side of the lake and leave the crowds on that side of the lake. And what does someone want to do when he sees this? What does someone want to do when he sees this? He wants to get into the boat with Jesus too. As he sees Jesus getting ready to leave, he wants to leave with Jesus too. Who is this person? Well, it's a teacher of the law, a scribe. Verse 19, it says, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. How do we know he wants to get into the boat with Jesus? He says, I will go wherever you go. He is obviously an admirer of Jesus. Uh, he is a teacher of the law, uh, also translated as a scribe, someone who instructs others. 
uh, in the ways of God. But he, in this moment, he has seen Jesus' teaching, he has seen his miracles, and what does he want to do? He wants to go wherever Jesus goes. Now, why would he want to do that? Why would he want to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Well, the scribe probably thinks Jesus is going to be like other rabbis, other great teachers, but even greater. He considers all the other rabbis that this teacher of the law has known, and then he compares them to Jesus. Jesus far outweighs them all. Why? Because he's this great teacher. He's this great miracle worker. He teaches with authority, unlike the other teachers of the law, unlike the other scribes, unlike the other rabbis. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that he, Jesus, will be treated with even greater respect and praise of men compared to the other rabbis. What was so attractive about being a rabbi? Being a rabbi meant that you would receive great respect from others. And Jesus even speaks about this in Matthew chapter 23. Turn with me a few pages over, page 980, page 980, Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, where Jesus starts to speak about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he starts the chapter, uh, chapter 23, by speaking about how they are treated by others. Chapter 23, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. Rabbi is um, Aramaic for great one, means my great one. So what does it mean to be a great rabbi? It means that people will submit to you, they will obey you, they will respect you, they'll give you places of honour at feasts, they'll invite you to the feast, but not just invite you there, they'll give you a place of honour. This is how the Israelites treated their rabbis. And this teacher of the law, of course, would know this. He may have even been treated in that way himself. But as he looks at the Lord Jesus, he sees that if Jesus keeps going the way he's going, it's going to mean a lovely life for Jesus. A lovely life for Jesus as people submit to him, respect him, invite him to banquets, give him places of honour. But that's Jesus. How would this be helpful for this teacher of the law? As he's wanting to follow Jesus, why would he be so keen to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Well, what happens to students of certain masters? What happens for the students of masters? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 6, something that we know today as well. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. What happens to teachers then usually happens to their students. And so if Jesus is going to be treated really well, what will happen to his students who are well trained by Jesus? They will be treated really well as well. What's going to come to Christ's students according to this teacher of the law? Is he's looking at how teachers of the law are treated in Israel? It's going to be feasts. And it's going to be praise of men. And submission of men to the students of Jesus, to his disciples as well as to Jesus. And for this man, it won't really be hard for him to secure a good place amongst Jesus' disciples, will it? He may even end up being the greatest of all disciples. And we know that even amongst Jesus' disciples, they were concerned about who would be the greatest. And 
as this teacher of the law looks at Jesus and looks at who his current disciples are and who his associates are, he'd be thinking, it won't take long for me to be the top dog amongst his disciples. Why? Well, you look at who his disciples are that he called back in Matthew chapter 4. He called fishermen to be his disciples, to be his students. And as we look at chapter 8 and we see Jesus' associates there, who does he associate with? He associates with lepers. He associates with Gentiles. He associates with women. And so it's not going to be easy, uh, that hard, if I'm a teacher of the law, to quickly ascend the ranks and the praise and the submission, the feasting that comes for Jesus... I'll be the, the right-hand man who's receiving that too. And so it's then not surprising that this man would delight in the thought of following Jesus and make this audacious statement to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, as he does in Matthew chapter 8, verse 19. But what does Jesus do? As this man makes this marvellous statement to him, this grand statement, I'll follow you wherever you go, what does Jesus do? He brings the man back down to reality. And what's reality? Following Jesus is painful. That's the reality that Jesus wants to convey to this man. How hard is it for someone who follows Jesus? Well, you may not even have a place to lay your head. Because Jesus often did not have a place to lay his head. We see in verse 20, it says, Jesus replied to this man after he makes this statement, I'll go wherever you go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man there, which we saw in Daniel chapter 7 is a reference to this person who is given great authority and power by the Ancient of Days. Jesus is telling this man what reality will be, that he himself, this great rabbi, will often not even have a place to lay his head. And how bad will it be? Well, it will actually be worse than a fox living in the hole in the ground. It can be even worse than a bird living in a cosy nest. The Son of Man will not have a place to lay his head. Even as the foxes have holes in the ground and birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man will have no place to lay his head. Was this true? Well, as we look at Christ's life, we see yes, starting from his birth. Where did he lay his head? In a manger. Not a nice cot, not a nice comfortable bed, but in a manger, which was for a feeding trough for, for animals. And as we continue to look at Jesus' life, what do we see? Well, if we look at even the very next verses, they will come. Jesus takes a nap, and where is he taking a nap? It's in a boat that is in a storm. Verse 23, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. That's where he lays his head, in a boat that's going into a storm. It's not a cruise ship that he's on, nice and comfortable. It is a small boat that was so being uh, uh, in such great uh, turmoil there in the, the ocean that they were, the disciples thought that they were going to drown. That's where Jesus is about to lay his head. But as we look at Jesus' life, we see again and again that his life was a life of pain and suffering. Jesus' own townsman in Nazareth... They try to throw him off a cliff. They don't give him comfortable lodging in Nazareth. We look at the town of Samaria. What do they do? They refuse Jesus' lodging. And if we look over at the end of chapter 8, he goes into the region of the Gadareans in verse 28. And then what do we read at verse 34? Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. They had no home for him in the Gadarenes. 
There was no home in Nazareth. There was no home in Samaria. Jesus went to and fro from place to place, rejected. And then, of course, with all his amazing teaching and all his amazing miracles, what did it get him in the end? When he went to Jerusalem, the capital of the people of Israel, of Christ's own people, what did he get? Taken outside the city and crucified. That is what happened to this great rabbi. With all his wonderful teaching and all his wonderful miracles, what did it get him? Complete rejection from the capital of his own people, taken out and crucified. And so what will this mean for Christ's students? What does this mean for Christ's students? Christ's students will find the world painfully hostile too. Jesus even warns of this. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he says, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus warns his disciples that they will find this world to be a painful place as well, a hostile home. And as we look at Christ's apostles, his disciples, did they leave cushy lives? No, they lived persecuted, painful lives. Most of them were martyred for the faith. You don't believe me? Read the book of Acts and you see again and again that the apostles were treated badly by this world. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this afternoon and look at the Apostle Paul and the recounting of all the ways that he suffered in shipwrecks and being beaten because of Christ, because he was a follower of Christ, because he was one of Christ's students. This is what Jesus is wanting to tell this teacher of the law. You're keen to follow me, but you must understand that I am going to live a life of pain and suffering and that will apply for my students as well. And that applies for us today as well as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. We must also be careful to count the cost of being Christ's disciples. Why should we be careful to count the cost? Well, because it's easy to get excited when we read the Bible and find the truth. When we, like those people of long ago, they see Christ's teaching, they see it with authority, they understand that this is true, this man is from God, and he speaks the truth. And as we read the word and the Holy Spirit illuminates our mind, we get very excited. We found the truth. We found why we are here and what our purpose is and where we are going. And so we get very excited. And then we see the miracles that Jesus does even today. What miracles does he do every time someone is converted? It's a miracle as a hard heart is replaced with a soft heart. The heart of stone is taken out. The heart of flesh is put in. It's a miracle. And we see it happening that I am a different person from what I was before. And I see other people around me that something supernatural has taken place in their life. And so we get excited. And as we see the process of sanctification happening, as we are overcoming sin, as we see people responding to addictions that they've had for years and they overcome them. We see the Holy Spirit working miraculously in people's lives. And so what are we tempted to do in that moment, in that excitement that we have of hearing the teachings of Christ and seeing his miracles that he is performing today? We can start to make audacious claims, bold claims, like what? Well, like the scribe made here. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And like the Apostle Peter did, I will never deny you, Jesus. These things start to come up in our minds and out of our lips as we see the great teachings of Christ and as we see his great miracles today. Are such claims wrong? Is it wrong to say, I'll never deny you, Jesus? Is it wrong to say, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus? No, it's a good thing to say. It's a good motivation to have. 
but it can be the wrong thing to say if it's a wrong motivation that's behind it. And what would be a wrong motivation for such claims? Well, wanting to follow Jesus because we think it will be all fluffy pillows, praise of men, and feasts, having lovely, yummy meals for the rest of our days because we're under God and we've found a community that will always provide for us and welcome us in and will praise us as we follow Jesus Christ. But what will happen if that is our motivation for following Jesus wherever we go? Well, our claims will quickly come to an end and we'll deny Jesus like Peter denied Jesus. Why? Because following Christ is not all fluffy pillows and feasts and praise of men. There is pain and suffering in the work that Christ calls us to as his disciples. Doing right requires denial of body and soul, the pleasures of body and soul, and often there is pain and suffering that comes from persecution of people towards those who hate Christ. Just as they hate Christ, they hate his disciples. And that is the reality we have to understand. Sometimes for Christians, their lives are worse off than a fox in a hole in the ground and worse than a bird in a nest. What does this mean then? means many things, but one thing it means is that the prosperity preachers are in direct denial of the teachings of Christ Jesus. When you ever hear someone tell you that if you become a Christian, everything will go well for you, that you will live your best life now, you have to understand that they are contrary to the teachings of Christ Jesus in this very verse, where he explains very clearly that his life is a life of suffering and pain. And so then what must we do? What must we do as we see Christ's teaching and miracles? We must count the cost of following Jesus. And what is the cost? The cost is pain and suffering for about 70 to 80 years, whatever your lifespan is here on earth. And why is that? Because you're going to have to deny yourself pleasures of body, deny yourself pleasures of soul, and you're going to have to, die, and you're going to, have to experience persecution at times as people will persecute you for following Christ Jesus. But then why would anyone bother following Christ? Why would you bother following Christ? Surely the cost isn't worth it. If it's going to mean denial of myself and mean pain and suffering, and if it's going to mean that people are going to persecute me for being a Christian, why bother being a Christian? Why bother saying to Jesus at all, wherever you go, I will follow you? Well, yes, there is a cost in following Jesus. But what does a cost bring? If something costs something, it means that there is something that comes because of the cost. And what, is the, what does the cost bring? A cost brings a reward. It brings something to us. Now, isn't it costly to buy a house in Sydney? If you want to buy a house in Sydney, it's going to cost you. But what does such a cost bring? It brings painful, hard work to, to, to pay for that house. It's going to cost you a lot of painful hard work beforehand. But what do you get after all the hard work? You get a place to lay your head. You get a place to lay your head. And it's the same with following Christ Jesus. Yes, it is costly to follow Jesus Christ. It requires years of pain and hard work. But what do you get to keep at the end? An eternal home. An eternal home. Where does Jesus lay his head now? That is, if he, he sleeps. I'm trying to work out this week whether he actually his body gets tired in heaven. He is still human, fully human, but does he get tired at all? Well, maybe I should have put it a different way. Where does he get to live now? 
Samaritans kicked him out. The people of Nazareth kicked him out. The Gadareans kicked him out. Jerusalem kicked him out. Where does Jesus get to live now? He gets to live in heaven itself. And that's what we're encouraged to do by the author of Hebrews is to fix our eyes on what he has achieved by his pain and suffering. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Yes, he endured a cross, but why? Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did suffer, but now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And if we are willing to suffer, where will we go? We'll get to go to heaven and be with the glorious Son of Man, as is described in chapter 7 of Daniel. Jesus teaches us this in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You want to save your life, you need to lose it for Christ. And that by doing that, you will save it. And it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says, so you will be raised if you have the same spirit living in you. Whereas if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, what do you get? Ultimately, you get hell. Yes, what might you get now? You maybe get a, get, get a foxhole in this world. You might get a hole in the ground. You might get a nest. You might even get some fluffy pillows. You may get some feasts in this world. You may get a lot of praise from men rather than persecution from men for not following Christ. But what is your reward in the next? It's hell. Why? Because you deserve to be punished for rejecting God and rejecting his ways. So what do we see as we count the cost of following Jesus? Although it costs to follow Christ, it is far more costly not to follow Christ. It costs to follow Christ, but it is far more costly not to follow Christ. The cost of 70 to 80 years of pain in being a Christian is minimal compared with eternity in hell. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yes, Paul is honest, we will suffer as Christians. There is a cost, but it's not worth comparing with what will be revealed in us, the heavenly reward that will come. And why is there no eternal pain for Christians, for Christ followers? Well, it's because Jesus paid the great cost of being a Christian at the cross. What was Jesus doing when he suffered at the cross? He was paying the cost of his disciples following him. What was the cost? The cost was hell, the punishments of hell. Why? Because no disciple is ever allowed to follow Jesus unless his sins are removed. No one's allowed to be a, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ unless his sins are removed. And no sins are removed unless what happens? The penalty of hell is paid. And so what did Jesus do? He counted the cost of having disciples and he paid the cost at the cross. How did he pay? He paid with his body and blood. Do you want to count the cost of following Christ Jesus? The true cost of following Christ Jesus? Look at the cross. 
Don't look at you. Look at the cross. That is the cost of following Christ Jesus. Someone must pay for your sins in order for you to be a disciple of Christ Jesus. That is where we see the true cost. And thankfully, it has been paid for us. And so Christ followers should be thanking Christ every day that the co- their cost of following him is nothing compared to what has already been paid by Jesus himself. So do you, this morning, do you expect fluffy pillows through being a Christian? That you'll have a nice place to lay your head if you become a child of God, if you follow Christ Jesus? Listen to Christ's warning. What warning? You will quickly fall away under the pain that comes of following him. And what will happen? Well, you may have a less painful life now, but you will lose your soul in hell. Heed the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit his very self. If you're here this morning and you think that being a Christian is a wonderful thing because it'll mean a lovely life in this world, think again. Count the cost, but also count the cost that will come to you if you do not follow Christ Jesus. You will lose your very self in hell. If you've never followed Christ Jesus before. I encourage you to do so this morning. How? By repenting of your sins and trusting that Jesus Christ died in your place, that he paid the penalty that you deserve. The cost that you owe to God was paid by him. Trust that that is the case for you. And yes, you may suffer for it, but you have a wonderful reward to look forward to. And that's what we should be doing if we have counted the cost and are willing to suffer for Christ Jesus, as many of us in this room are. We are people who have counted the cost. We've seen that it may mean a life of denial of self. Many pleasures that the world embraces, we will deny. But we are willing to give those up and suffer and follow Jesus wherever he will go, wherever he will lead us. And so what should we do? We should rejoice despite our pain. Why? What reasons do we have to rejoice in our suffering when we may not even have a foxhole in this world? We may not even have a nest to nest in. What joy do we have? Where can we get some joy as we follow Christ Jesus? Well, Christ's teachings by the Spirit do give great satisfaction. I said, why do people get excited? Why does this teacher of the law get so excited about following Jesus? It's because he heard the teachings of Christ. And as we read the Bible, we do get excited and we want to follow him. And as we continue to read over our lifetime, as we follow him, they continue to give us joy. We have found the truth and the truth has set us free. And so we should delight all our days, even as we suffer, even as we're persecuted, because we have the words of eternal life. And of course, as we see the miracles that Christ is doing today, it's It should give us joy even as we experience pain and suffering. As we see people converted, as we see people changed who were horrible are now lovely, lovable people. We delight in that. We rejoice. And as we see ourselves overcoming sin and we see others in our lives overcoming sin, we rejoice in that too. 
as we see the miracles of Christ still happening and operating in this world today by the power of the Holy Spirit. So why should we rejoice? The teachings of Christ, the miracles of Christ, but why else should we rejoice even as we suffer in this world as Christians? Well, we have the joy of going home with a great reward from our service and we will get to meet the Son of Man. Why does any worker endure painful jobs, horrible jobs, day after day, where it requires sweat and muscle ache day after day. Well, he has his eye on the clock, doesn't he, each day. He knows when home time will be, and he can go home and rest with his family. And he has his eye on the pay packet as well, that that painful job that he's doing will bring reward as well. And it's the same for us as Christians. Why do we endure the pain and the persecution and the suffering of this world in following Christ Jesus? Well, we follow in the footsteps of our master who had his eye on the throne room of heaven itself. And that is for us as well. We have our eye on home time. We have our eye on the time when we will get to go and be in heaven and have a very great reward in living with Jesus because of our faithfulness, in following him wherever he would go, despite the pain and suffering that it would bring. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your knowledge of all things, and we thank you for warning us of the pain of following you, just as you warned that man so many years ago. But Lord, we also thank you for telling us of the reward and the joy that can be experienced now and in heaven if we do follow you. Oh, Lord, we confess that we often shrink back because of pain. But, Lord, we ask that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep our eye on you and the cross, the penalty that you paid, the true cost of being your disciple, and keep our eye on the home that we are looking forward to so that we would keep following you wherever you go. And, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has not counted the cost of following you, may they count the cost of not following you and see that it costs them hell for eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that they would flee to you now in repentance and faith. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.